part of why I think it's worth watching something like that is to put what we have in perspective. What we have are these freedoms that sometimes we can kind of take or leave. But there's this whole movement of people where they don't have the freedom to gather publicly for worship. And it's done something in their faith. In fact, the church has always actually thrived within persecution. Now, I'm not rooting for persecution. And I'm not even calling what the church in America is going through as persecution. But when I look at what's happening at the church in China, I'm seeing a group of dedicated followers who have gone through a personal process of reorientation. And I think that's an important thing for us to consider, both as Christians, but also as a community of faith called Mission Hills. See, when we set out to that, a lot of people look at our website, they look at our calendar, the schedule of meetings, the locations of our meetings, the kind of events we throw and go, wow, you're really doing things differently. But if you're in China and you don't have the ability to do any kind of marketing, you don't have the ability to have any kind of outward public face, you have a dedicated group of followers who are committed to having a life uh, uh, that they can articulate the difference Christ is making at great risk. I think that's compelling. They didn't need a large building for something to grow as a movement. They didn't need even large gatherings to actually be the church. So we have a unique situation here that I think we're positioned to be a part of what God wants to do in the future of church in America. But it's not that it gets anything too original. Yeah, it's a little unique. But when I see what's happening around the world, and oh, by the way, I would encourage you, we are actually invited to be praying for the persecuted church, whether it be in Afghanistan or whether it be in, in China, uh, whether it be in Iran or Iraq. I think God's church is growing, um, but we just don't always get to see signs and glimpses and, and, and the wonder of that growth. Now, the reason I also wanted to share that is because we are in a study uh, where we've just began this idea of hope, and we're looking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And the reason why I think it's so important is Paul starts this church and makes quite a big splash to the point where he has to flee. So he makes a splash in this congregation, and then now everyone else is furious with him. And so that's kind of why I want to tee it up today, because there's a level of persecution going on in the church in Thessalonica, as well as the church today. Um, our director of marketing and um, social media services has asked me real quick to just take a selfie of our church. So um, if you just want to peel off your mask, hold your breath, and wave your hand, let's do this so that we can get an all covers. If you're out in the lobby, wave to us too. Yay. Give us a wave. Yay. Okay. There you go. Okay. Now, Mevo, we got you on camera. So if you're watching on camera, just give us a, like, a little like or like a thumbs up or a mood emoji just so we know. You have a pulse, but we're glad you're here with us. You might want to open up your app. There's some notes that are included on the app if you want to follow along. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. But let me be, begin by saying two things. One, I just want to give a shout out to Justin. Uh, this is Justin's, uh, he's been, we hired him sight unseen in quarantine, and he's been our worship leader for, um, well, about the last year, um, but Justin has a new worship gig that he's going to be going to. And so today, if on our kind of greeting time afterward, just thank him and just 
Thank you, Justin, for being here and being with us. Uh, you met him online, <laughs> and we kind of grew to an in-person worship. So it's been a weird year to kind of find and, and uh, staff for talent, but we're really thankful for uh, Justin during this time. Um, the thing that I wanted to ask you, starting out, is this. If you had some old college friends, or if you had some parents that were coming to town, if you had some really like, good family member, someone that you wanted to host and host well, what would you do? It's not a trick question. You would get ready. Now, what that would look like might mean something different. If you had friends come to town or family members and you wanted to host them well, you probably would think about, well, maybe what shows? Who's going to be in town? Because they want to come and they know about the live music capital of the world, and so you might look to get some tickets, see who's playing where. You might see who's in town. Maybe uh, is it a UT game? Um, you might go shopping and, and stock up on um, your, your pantry just so you, you can like be a good host. Or you might change the linens in the bedroom. You might do some laundry and even sprucing up around the house. There would be some things that you might do. But the thing we'd all do is we'd get ready. And the reason I paint that picture for you is that's exactly what Paul is trying to do in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because his main primary message is the hope that we all have both then and now in Christ's imminent and ultimate return. Jesus is coming again. So it begs a couple of really basic questions. Are you excited? In other words, does that cross your mind occasionally? Like the world that we're experiencing now isn't an end in itself. It gets better. And number two, how are you preparing? Are you doing anything today in the here and now to prepare for Christ's coming and the restoration of all things? Because heaven is more than a there and then. Heaven is also a here and now. Every now and then we get our appetite wet for what heaven can be like in this context. There is a lot of brokenness. There is a lot of abuse, injustice. There's a lot of things in this world that were the world that God never intended. But every now and then we see heaven breaking in. And I think as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to participate in that restoration. And we don't have to wait till he returns. So when Paul writes this letter, he's trying to instill this kind of sustaining hope. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, there's opposition. Yeah, there's confusion. But hear me, it gets better. And, and there's a living hope a living reality that we can live into. Now, Paul is writing after this brief, like, big splash. He kind of made a, a big splash, and all these people got really interested in the gospel, and they said yes, and they turned their life. They were in the process of reorienting their lives, and then he runs away. And so he's writing 1 Thessalonians with the urgency of a nursing mother wanting to make sure that her babe is well-fed and guided and protected and nurtured and comforted. That's how Paul is writing. He did not want to leave. And he's having this kind of oh my gosh, I fell in love with these people and I'm worried that this might be fruit that's ripe on the vine and now it's shriveling. So get that picture from the author himself, why and how he's writing with this sense of urgency. Now he flees to this town of Corinth. Corinth is heavily influenced by Greek culture as is Thessalonica. 
So imagine going through, if you've been, like, if you've seen Clash of the Titans, if you read things like the, around Greek mythology, this is their primary form of worship. In fact, real quick, time out. I have to tell you a story that, of course, fit right into this. Uh, in September's lab, we went out to uh, a park with Table of Grace. So for our church expression, we practice hospitality and community and compassion by hosting a group of about mm, 10 to 12 foster kids up at a park at Round Rock. We played bubble soccer. It was delightful. And then we gave out some grab bags at the end, which the kids didn't just say, thank you. I mean, they kind of dug into them like there and on the spot. Do you remember that? So I sit down at a table and there's like four or five of them and they start opening their bags and they're talking about what they got and then they start like every kid at a lunch table, I'll trade you for this and I'll trade you for that and doing that whole number. And this girl sitting across from me, she said, I, I hadn't talked to her that day. I said, what's your name? And she says, Charisma. I went, oh my gosh, that is an awesome name. Do you know what your name means? Uh, I don't know, people have told me like different things. That's my 14-year-old girl voice. Uh, I'm sorry if that's uh, inappropriate, but it was like, well, like life or something. I go, actually, what your name means, because I've studied a little bit of Greek, it comes to us out of the Greek word meaning gift. Charisma, you're a gift. And she looks back at me like this kind of like, no one's ever called me a gift before. And I said, it's not like something that's deserved or earned. It's a gift that only God can give. Like if you've ever watched that um, American Idol and someone has the it factor, something that you, it's more caught than taught, it's something that they just have this kind of giftedness. They either have it or they don't. That's the gift from God. That's charisma. She goes, wow, that is really neat. And I like all the Greek gods, too. Oh, I, like, I, like, that's not where I thought this conversation was going. Like, you just took that in a different direction. I was like, so do you like Percy Jackson, too? Do you read those? Oh, I love Percy Jackson. I was like, yeah, awesome. Like, I thought we were having a moment there, and she just ran a whole different way. And all I could say is... When Paul's writing and talking to people at Corinth or Thessalonica, where they're flooded with Greek gods, they're like, wow, that god sounds really cool. And we like Zeus, too. Or we like Apollos, too. Or we like, you know, whatever. And they're like, Jesus? Wow, that sounds like a cool demigod I've never heard of. And you're like, yeah, no, not quite. There's something more eternal. There's something, there's like truth with a capital T, not just a relative truth with a lowercase t. So that's where we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to read just a couple of verses, and I want to start kind of just making a few observations. So um, this is that same religious landscape of Corinth to Thessalonica, uh, where the Greek gods are this big show in town, but there's also some Jews that are around them that have failed to recognize that the Messiah has in fact come. They're still waiting for, quote, the anointed one, of which Paul was saying, no, he just came. Don't miss that bus. Get on. There's still room, but he's already come and he's already ascended. So he sends his trusted apprentice, Timothy, a young protege, to say, can you go 
find out how this young church is doing. Well, Timothy goes and he comes back with this glowing report that these young Christians, this young house church movement has actually reoriented their lives around Christ in the midst of opposition, in the midst of disagreement, they're staying the course. So the young apprentice returns to Paul and going, you're not going to believe this, Paul, but they're doing great. So you can imagine Paul writing as this proud parent, and he writes this letter. And he starts out with these kind of glowing remarks. Here's where he begins in uh, beginning in verse 2. We always thank God for you, for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember our God and Father, your, uh, Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is really starting to gush on them. But can I just, just say something as an aside before we really get into it? Paul says that he mentions them in, their, in his prayers. Do you have a list of people that you mention in your prayers? This is super important for us. As we reorient our lives in Christ, we need to have a prayer list that doesn't just involve my needs, my needs and wants and me and mine. Our prayer lives need to include a list of others, specifically those who might not yet have an experience with Christ in any wholesale or transformative ways. And Paul states, I mention you in my prayers. We need to be mentioning, in fact, the assignment a couple of weeks ago when we had the lab, learn a name, use the name, pray for the name. I would encourage you, talk with your kids, who was the name of the foster kid that you met? Have you still been able to pray for them by name? Foster care is no joke, but we are invited to have this sacred relationship with them. And we're growing this trusted strategic partnership so that we can add to our prayer list names that we might not have any like impact on um, other than we're praying by faith that God would do something. Just as a side note. Now, he goes on to say a couple more things. Timothy returns to Corinth with this glowing report. And so Paul, again, this is where he gets into proud paramount. He gushes over them. And it's clear that in starting this, he has this really deep love for them um, and their growth. Now, the last thing Paul wanted to do was have to leave. But he goes on in verse five, uh, 4 and 5. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So there's not going to be any reorientation without a deep conviction. What do we mean by a deep conviction? Hmm, maybe a new priority. Maybe it's uh, a new um, desire, a new motivation. But whatever that deep conviction is, it has created a new reorientation for their lives. Um, and, and he talks about that only comes through the Holy Spirit. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And so here's this thing. He had this, this thought that he was celebrating in them is that the Holy Spirit was allowing them to thrive even in opposition. 
Holy Spirit is a tricky thing to sort of pin down in most of our lives. We don't often feel like it. We don't often discern it or know how it feels. But sometimes it just feels like the next step. Sometimes it feels like the encouragement text. Sometimes it feels like the feeling when you gather with a community of people like a tribe that says, oh, I don't have to do it on my own. And, and, and the Holy Spirit has a really subtle way of saying, I'm with you. And so here's all these people that have been essentially left leaderless, spiritually leaderless. And they're thriving, even in the midst of the op opposition. Uh, and so, in other words, their decision to follow created this reorientation of not only their heart, but their values. How? Verse 6 and 7 kind of explains that. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, in spite of severe suffering, and you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, so there is this testimony that he wants to give that there was outward-facing fruit of their lives, that they became imitators of not only Paul and Timothy and his entourage, but of the Lord's heart himself. Now, one of the things that I think is the great challenge of all the world is to decide that I want to be who I think God is, even when I don't have any immediate ROI. So I believe God is a generous God. So I want to be faithful in giving and be generous with my time, with my money, with my energy and efforts, with my influence and my network. I try and be a giver. The problem is I often end up leaving myself vulnerable, feeling like I outgave because maybe they didn't appreciate it enough. Maybe they didn't treat it well enough. Maybe, maybe I felt a little taken advantage of. And you know what I go to in times like this? How did Jesus feel when he gave all of himself because he wanted to mirror his father's heart in this world. And so I am committed to just deciding and reminding myself, this is who I believe God is, and this is who I believe he's created me to be. And people will always let us down, but there's this commitment to want to follow who God is despite the circumstances around us. And this is what he's saying, you became imitators. Um, and this is what the gospel is. It's not just individual salvation for me um, or simply I get to go to heaven when I die. The reality is that Jesus inaugurates this new kingdom value. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. And so we have this picture where we become co-laborers participants in restoring and repairing. And it's not just about getting the impact, it's about choosing to follow despite the opposition. And here we get into seed sowings. And when I get to sow seeds, all I have to do is trust God with the results. Now, sometimes I get to see the fruit of my labor. Most times it feels like, God, I'm trusting you with the results but I believe this is forming you in me. And this is what Paul is celebrating in these new young Christians in this house church that's being inundated with all of these other voices. So let me lift you up because we're talking about being rooted in hope. Hope 
um, is about this panorama of our lives. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But we're talking about a reorientation. In other words, I was going one way and now I'm heading the other. And he gives life in three tenses. Check out what verse 8 through 10 begin to say. It says this, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only uh, um, in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, who raised from the dead Jesus, who rescues us in the coming wrath. The picture is, this is who you were. You turned. In other words, there was a moment in life where you didn't just add God to your already decent existence and say, can you just make it a little better? No, there was a turning. It involved surrender. It involved pledging their allegiance. It involved laying down. It involved confession. There was a turning from. And he says in verse 9, uh, he, he opens it up. He's saying, the Lord's message rang out to you, for they report as the kind, uh, how you turn to God from your idols. You let him go. You didn't just hold on to your idols and add Jesus to it as one of many other gods. You let it go. And I think one of the challenges in life is that we all have to contend with our own idols. And maybe our idol is just our control or our perfectionism. Maybe our idol is sort of our accumulation, net worth, and our wealth. Maybe our idol is just our own insecurities and trying to overcome our regrets and shame and remorse. Whatever the idol might be, he's inviting us to turn from it and find new life in him. But then it says, uh, the second part of that was, was when he says, you turn from your idols uh, and how you turned to God. So the past, the believers turn from God. The present is you turn to a living God. It's not just the removal of things. It's the pursuit of something new. And it says, you became imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. You became imitators of me and Timothy. There was this new imitation that, that was changing them from the inside out. And then he talks about future tense. So this is the panorama. You have, they turned both from and toward past and present. And then he talks about the future in verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. So there is this picture of waiting about a future hope, about something that you don't just have to wait as sort of passivity, but the waiting involves active engagement or what we might share as the practice of a living faith. So, yes, am I looking forward to Christ's ultimate return? 100%. But while I wait, there's this kind of life that I want to implement where I want to parent my kids in the way of hospitality. Kids, this isn't our home. This is the Lord's. And so you're going to help us get ready for guests. And these guests, they might never invite us back over. But we have this home, and we want to share it. And this is how we raised our children. And we talked about compassion as simply being able to see needs in other people that are different than our own. But we're all, at the end of the day, needy. But our needs are different. So we just began instilling this kind of living faith. And that's how this church began to grow in how we want to not only put, make faith and community accessible, but we want to be able to disciple and teach our kids how to practice a living faith. That's why we call it labs instead of Sunday school.
<laughs> we want to be able to experiment with what we think is true about who God is. So as we learn to reorient our life as image bearers, we begin to take on maybe new concerns, new motivations, new desires, new prioritize. And hope unites us with the reconciling work of God in the world. Now, it also means that we don't have to solve everyone else's problems. So there's this idea that somehow, what difference will it make if I get involved? And all I'm saying is God has called us to be seed planters and trust him with the results. Let me give you an illustration. Um, just this last week, I uh, had the chance to go to the dentist, not because I went, but because one of our Burmese friends, Minute, or she also goes by Blessing New, uh, she um, is in her 30s. She has four children, and this was her first visit to the dentist office. She's never had a numbing agent. Imagine how foreign that would feel. Imagine how nervous you'd be. She said, growing up, I never had a toothbrush. That was for the rich people. And I'm like, uh. And so she now brushes twice a day. She flosses a couple of times a week. But she had such a severe cavity that anything cold she did for over a week, there's just this jolt because there's this exposed nerve in her mouth. I can't solve Medicare for those who don't have health coverage. I want to, I cannot. I can't solve and get everyone. You know what I did? I just found one person um, who's willing to do dental care. And, and I want to share this because you paid for it. Our Good Neighbor Fund, which is just our church with a $1 cover charge every time we gather and we set aside money so that we have a community pot to practice generosity, I call up Dr. Hassler at Legend Dental, who I know is a follower of Christ, uh, and just said, I've got, I've got another one. Now, just so you know, I have dental insurance and I've started going to him just so I can at least give him a paying customer. But this is probably like the fourth or fifth um, uh, Burmese person that I brought. And guess how much he charged us? A hundred bucks for a little heaven on earth. You might think, well, what difference is that? I'm just trusting God with the results. But you know what? Her husband who's gone through language classes and is trying to support and save up for a house, but he's also paying for his dad's sickness and his wellness visits back in Burma. I mean, it was just a chance. And, and I got to tell you, it felt a little inconvenient. It wasn't, um, she didn't have transportation. So I'm driving down to East Riverside to take her up to central Austin and then had to take her back home. I mean, it took several hours out of my day. And then I start realizing, is that a complaint? No, I get to do that. And all of a sudden, in the middle of sort of, oh, I'm trying to do some, accomplish some other things, I'm reminded, this is what resensitizes our hearts. This was the, like the most humanizing day of my week. And it wasn't convenient, but it was good. And her husband's like texting me with this profuse, thank you for doing that. She's been complaining. She can't sleep at night. And you got her help. And so we're on for another couple of visits to do some more. She's got severe cavities. And once you know it, <clears throat> by Thursday, Stephen, another one of the Burmese, is asking for dental care. And I'm like, here's my text to Dr. Hassler. You can say no. 
but I got another customer. And we have more money in our good neighbor fund, so you don't have to just totally like not get paid for this. This is the living hope that we get to experience in the here and now. And I can't make the world right, but I can bring a little justice and a little mercy and a little hope to those who don't have an advocate. And this is what I think Paul is inviting into, that Christ is ultimately returning, but we don't have to just wait passively for the goodness of God to be experienced in the here and the now. So I would just like to close in prayer and just ask simply this question. How does the idea of Christ's second coming inform how we live? I know that's something you might not think about often, but I want you to consider, if Christ is coming again, how are you preparing? How are you getting ready for that? Because you don't have to wait for him to just show up. We can align our hearts and our lives in his, and there's something that's very transformational about that. Let me pray with you. God, I'm aware that we go through a reorientation all the time. Sometimes we get a new job and it means a new commute and it means different clock and a different hour of the day to be ready and on the road. Sometimes we say, I do, and we start a new relationship called marriage and it reorients our lives. And sometimes, Lord, when we have kids, it now reorients our lives once again. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to go through a reorientation where you begin from the inside out reshaping the motivations, the desires, the priorities, the convictions of our hearts to align more closely with you, that we might be ministers of heaven on earth. Lord, I thank you for what Paul was communicating back then to this house church movement and how they just dedicated their lives to following you and and telling your story in them. Thank you for the church in China and how it's flourishing despite no real visibility. I pray for Mission Hills. I pray for my friends gathered today that we would be like a scattered army that we would be like a flash mob who appears out of nowhere to bring joy and to bring hope and to bring goodness. I pray that this community would be strengthened in our gathering, but would be fortified as we scatter throughout our weeks. And we would be preoccupied with a living hope and, and, and your subtle but transformational work in each of us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said together, amen.